Merry Christmas. Welcome to uh, our guests. If you're new, welcome to everybody online. And uh, if you're, you know, family members invited you here, drug you here because they said no cookies unless you come to church with me. Very sorry about that, but glad it worked. Uh, here we are. We've been into this pandemic thing for like nine months now. Quarantine, lockdown, and so you know what was expected to happen about this time nine months later, right? It's supposed to be like this baby boom going on. But surprise, just the opposite. There's been a bit of a baby bust. It seems that more people are concerned about bringing a baby into this world right now. Or maybe, I don't know, it could just be the social distancing that's resulted in fewer babies, whatever it is. Um, it's exciting when a baby is announced, you know? Back when Penny and I had our two children, there wasn't a whole lot of fanfare about announcing your pregnancy or announcing the, the gender of your baby. But today it's like a big deal. You have these big gender reveal parties. People try to come up with these fun, clever, dramatic ways to announce the gender of their child. Maybe smacking a pinata full of confetti that's blue or pink. Or maybe using a, a, a spray gun, you know, a paint gun to, to <laughs> douse in blue or, or pink. Maybe a, a cut in a cake and inside it's blue or pink, or doing a burnout with blue or pink smoke, right? Some cool things, but sometimes it, it goes bad. So watch a few. This one every time. Uh. <laughs> Did you notice that they, they were all blue? Every one of those mess ups was a boy. I don't know what that says, but you know, when, when the, the gender of Mary's baby was announced, it was a boy too. Surprise, it's a boy. Way more dramatic because it was an angel that announced it, and she knew on the very day of conception what gender it was going to be. It's a son. In fact, it's the son of God. Jesus was conceived in the womb of Mary, but you know what? He existed long before his conception. He's always existed because he actually is God. Before he was known as Jesus as a man, John's gospel points out that he was known as the word. Look at John 1.1. In the beginning, which is a throwback to Genesis 1.1, right? In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. He's called the Word because the Word reveals God to us better than even mere words can. And the Word was with God. And get this, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He's always existed as God. And so John goes on in verse 14 to say, the Word became flesh. There's Christmas right there, the incarnation. And he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus, the second person of the Holy Trinity, one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, fully God becomes also fully human. And that's what we celebrate every year at Christmas time. The real meaning is that God 
became one of us to live among us, to do for us what no one else could do. And that's to become our savior and our Lord. So what is our response to that? What should it be? What's our big idea? To believe in Jesus as God's son. He's more than just a sweet cooing baby asleep in the hay. He is God in the flesh. And he's the one described in that carol we sang earlier. Hark the herald angels sing. Veiled in flesh. He's that deity described. He's the Godhead. Veiled in flesh. The Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Incarnate God with us. God in the flesh. Emmanuel. So this season we have been exploring the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As each one of them give us a little bit different aspect of who Jesus is and what he did for us. Each one of these gospel writers are evangelists because they're sharing the good news of salvation with us. Gospels are a unique form of literature. They're not just historical biography, but they are written to persuade us to believe the gospel, this good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Believe, that's the key word in John's gospel, believe. And he uses that word some 100 times throughout his writings. Now, in past weeks, we've seen the other gospel writers. Matthew presenting Jesus as the messianic king. We've seen Mark present him as the suffering servant. We've seen Luke present him as the perfect human. And all three of those first gospels, we call them the synoptics, because they kind of see everything in the same way, in the same format. I mean, they were all written around the same time, about 20 to 40 years after Jesus rose and, and went back into heaven. So they all kind of generally track along the same way and supplement and complement one another. Now, understand all four Gospels focus in on the main thing, and that's the death and resurrection of Jesus, that he came to be our Savior. We get a fuller picture as we put all four of them together. But John, John is a little bit different. John gives us some things that the, the other three do not. Why? Well, John writes much later than the other three do. He writes his gospel when he's an old man, like in the, in the years 80, 50, 85 to 90. So like even 20 to 40 years later than the other three did. He's like the last living apostle. And so he obviously was aware of the other three gospels. And he, I'm sure he thought, well, I'm not just going to repeat everything that they've done. They've covered a lot of stuff. I'm going to go ahead and give you some stuff that those three didn't give you. And John could do that because I think he was closer to Jesus than anybody else. Yes, he was one of the original 12 disciples. In fact, he was, he was a part of the inner three, you know, Peter, James, and John, the ones that really were close to Jesus. But John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in fact, we know Jesus was close to him because as he hung there on the cross dying, he looked down at John and at his mother Mary and he said, John, from now on, that's your mother. As, as the oldest, Jesus' responsibility was to make sure his mother was taken care of. And so she went to live with John instead of her own children, Jesus' brothers and sisters. That's how close John was to Jesus. And so he gives us these other things that the others don't. I mean, he, he covers a couple of miracles that the others do, and certainly the death and resurrection of Christ, but everything else 
in John is new and different. And yet again, all four together give us this one unified, consistent story. And all four point out Jesus in the same way. Yes, he's king, he's servant, he's son of God, he's son of man. But John focuses much more on Jesus as God, that he's the eternal God. He doesn't tell us the nativity story. And John, you're not going to find the manger and the shepherds and the angels and the wise men. Why? Well, same reason you don't find a genealogy there. Like in Matthew and Luke, they tell all those birth stories and genealogies, tracing his lineage back to King David and the royal line and through Abraham and all. John's not concerned with that. Well, first of all, the other two guys did perfectly fine job telling those stories. John's focus on Jesus being eternal God. He existed before he ever came to this earth. And so as we look at these four creatures over the weeks, we see that each one of them has come to represent each of the four gospel writers because they bring out a little bit different aspect. It comes from the imagery we find in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, these four living creatures, also in the book that John wrote, also Revelation in the New Testament, these four creatures. Now, understand there's nothing in the Bible itself which connects these four creatures to the four gospel writers. It's just, don't put too much into it. It's just something that's developed over time that became a memory device to help you understand how each gospel was a little bit different, had a little bit different audience. And we've, been, we've been showing you how this has crept up in Christian art and architecture, and you see it in churches and cathedrals. We'll show you a few more pictures this week of how uh, these four are represented and I think the way that makes the most sense is the way we have them here. Because sometimes the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they get switched around. You know, the lion and the ox and the, and the man, they all, they, it's never like a consistent way. But I think it makes most sense here. The lion represents Matthew because Matthew is Jewish and he's writing to Jewish people. And he's referring to Jesus being the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. As the lion is the king of the beast, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The ox represents Mark best because Mark is writing to Roman people who are concerned with actions and deeds and, and the ox is a beast of action. It's a beast of, of burden, of service that eventually gets sacrificed and Jesus is that suffering servant. The man represents Luke, I think, best because Luke presents Jesus as the perfect human. He's writing to Greeks who are very interested in trying to perfect the ideal humanity but those three get, again, mixed around sometimes. But John, John is always the winged eagle because the eagle is the most majestic and loftiest of birds soaring into the heavens and he presents Jesus as eternal God. He's, he's, this, he's this one who is above all else. And John's not writing to any particular audience necessarily like the other three he's writing to all of us it's a universal gospel and so i don't it made me think of the lord of the rings anybody a fan of the lord of the rings here hobbit come on admit it all right there's some good all right great stories and if you're familiar you know the great eagles in the stories what's the function of the eagles they are the rescuers they're the saviors whenever like you see sam and frodo there in the exploding lava of mount doom in an impossible desperate situation there's no escape no way out the great eagles swoop in at the last moment grab them by the talons and transport them away to safety Guys, if that is not a picture of divine grace rescuing us from hell, I don't know what is. 
Now, th- th- this is like a classic deus ex machina, right? If you know stories in theater, this, uh, this God of the machine that comes in at the last moment to deliver somebody out of a desperate, impossible situation. Because in ancient Greek theater, when actors would be on the stage and they'd get into a desperate, impossible situation, another actor playing a God would be lifted, well, actually would be first be lifted up and then lowered like on a crane, on a machine, down onto the stage to rescue the actors. And that is Jesus. He is the real deal, deus ex machina, because he is the real deus. He is actually the God who swoops out of heaven into our desperate, impossible situation when there was no way out and no escape, and he saves us when we could not save ourselves. He rescues us and we enjoy a happy ending. And so this this Jesus claims to be Deus, he is God. John quotes him in John 10, 30 saying, I and the Father are one. And he of course backs that up with miracles, with rising from the dead, he receives worship, right? After Jesus rose from the dead, there was doubting Thomas, he hadn't seen it. And John records how when Thomas finally encounters Jesus, here's what Jesus says, put your finger here. See my hands, put your hand in and place it in my side. See, holes in my hand, a wound in my side. Do not disbelieve, but what? Believe, there's that word over and over, believe. And Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. But then Jesus makes this claim, this promise to those of us who were not there to see it as firsthand eyewitnesses. Blessed are those of us who have not seen and yet, what? Believed. Believe. Will you stop doubting and believe? A couple of verses later, John tells us specifically, here's my purpose in writing this. John 20, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. And by the way, John only tells us of about 20 days in the life of Jesus. Just 20. Why? Because he has a purpose. Jesus did lots of things, but I'm writing these things, he says. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, no, the Gospels don't tell us everything he did, but they tell us what we need to know, what God wants us to know. And the final verse of the whole book is this statement in John 21. Jesus did many other things as well. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Maybe a little bit of hyperbole. But the point being is Jesus did lots of stuff And you think, well, why didn't the Gospels cover all the other days of his life, all the other details? Why do do some of them, or sometimes all of them, not talk about all that he did? Why? One answer. Because the cross and the empty tomb are central, are indispensable to the Gospel story. That's what we need to know. So let me give you three lines of evidence from the Gospel of John so that you can come to believe that Jesus is God. First, there are seven signs that show Jesus as God. Seven signs. See, you could almost break down John's gospel into two major sections. The first half would be known as maybe the book of signs. The second half, the book of glory. The first half, chapters two through 12, give us seven miracles 
that act as signs to point us to the deity of Jesus so that you would believe. What are they? He turns water to wine. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on the water. He heals the nobleman's son. He heals a disabled man. He heals a blind man. And he raises Lazarus from the dead. All evidential miracles. Book of signs. Second half of the book, book of glory, chapters 13 through 20, focus now on his final days. In fact, chapters 13 through 19 take up a third of the book, but they only cover one day. One day. His last day on earth. They take us from the last supper in the upper room where he gives these long talks to his disciples and takes them out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he's arrested, brought on trial in different courts, and then finally crucified just that one day. But then, chapter 20 is the greatest sign of all. It's the resurrection. That was the proof that he was God because, guys, if Jesus did not rise from the dead then he cannot be God. He's just another dead guy. And we are without hope. We are still lost in our sins. But if he did rise from the dead, that changes everything. And if he rose, then we're going to rise and be with him forever. That's the gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ and what it accomplished for us. Seven signs, but now John gives us seven titles that show Jesus as God. These are titles that belong to God and sometimes they're declared through symbolism, but they all point to his deity. We already saw him in John 1 referred to as what? Remember, the word reveals God, but then he's also called the creator. He's called this, the savior of the world. He's God's only son. He's the true light. He is he's this, this great one of God who is uh, the, the, the lamb. The lamb was the sacrifice. He's the king of Israel. All of these titles point to his deity, but there's even more than that because Jesus gives himself titles. And so the third line of evidence are all these I am statements that show Jesus is God. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament scriptures, I am is the name of God, right? Jesus said, I am God's son. I am is what God revealed as his own personal name. We don't know how to pronounce it. We think it's Yahweh. Sometimes it's pronounced as Jehovah. But it's the name he revealed to Moses when he said, God, I got to go to Pharaoh and ask him to let your people go. But when he asked who sent me, what do I say? And God said, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. I am the self-existent eternal one. That's who sent you. And so get this, later on when Jesus shows up, and the Jewish leaders began attacking him. They questioned in John 8, are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets, they died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus makes this astonishing claim. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, what? I am. There's God's name. I am. What's the result? They pick up stones to throw at him. They want to kill him. Stone him to death. Why? Because they understand that he's using God's name for himself. He's saying, I not only was here 2,000 years ago before Abraham was born, but I have always been. I am the God who was and is and is to come. Deal with it. Another time, 
They tried to kill him for the same reason in John 5. And he was calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. Jesus claims these, these seven metaphorical I am names for God. And I'm going to put the name I am in capital so you, you don't miss this. In John chapter uh, 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's not saying, I will give you bread. He's saying, I am the bread. I am the heavenly manna that nourishes and sustains you. John 8, I am the light of the world, the one who brings truth and dispels darkness so that you can walk in the real light of life. John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. And in that same chapter, I am the good shepherd who cares for and leads the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. John 15, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me lives in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in John 14, love it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Not I will teach you the way or I will show you the way. I am the only way. Nobody comes to the Father except through me because I am the truth and I am the life. And then seven, seven, to Martha, whose brother Lazarus died. He says, I am, there it is, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever, what, believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die do you believe this and she said to him yes lord i believe that you are the christ the son of god and he raised up lazarus from the dead do you do you believe this would you be willing to confess along with martha you are the christ the Messiah, you are the son of God and that you would put your trust in him. That's what I invite you to do if you've never done that before. To believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I'm not talking about believing like it's a fact. Like, yes, I believe two plus two is four. Uh, you're just agreeing with a fact. Belief is about putting your trust. It's like the chair. Look at one of those empty chairs by you. And you look at it and you say, yes, I believe that chair could hold me up. That's one level of belief, but you go to a whole other level when you actually sit in the chair. That's what we're talking about. It's like a dad saying to his child, do you believe in me? Well, yeah, dad, I, I believe in you. You exist. You're my dad. Okay. No, I'm talking about a dad who is standing with his arms wide open, calling up to his child in that second story window as the house is on fire saying, do you believe in me? Do you have that kind of faith? You can become a child of God today if you believe. Jesus promises this. This is what John says in John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become a child of God. That could be you. Right now, believe in Jesus as God's son. To say, yes, I believe and I receive Jesus. I put my trust in him. I put my whole life in his hands. I turn from my sin and I'm going to be baptized into Christ today, identified with him. If you've never done that, we're ready to do that for you today. What a great time to do it, Christmas time. 
to be baptized into Christ, to do what you saw in those videos of others who have made that same decision, the best decision ever. Maybe you've been a believer for many years, but you've never made it your own decision to be immersed like that. And today you would say, you know what, it's time. I want this to be my choice. I want to do what Scripture says and be baptized, fully immersed into Christ, so I can know for sure I've done what God has said. And you just say to him, Lord, whatever you have to do for me yet, do it now. So if you're ready to make that decision, would you reach out to us and let us know? Text your name to that number, 734-304-7248, or email us next at southpointccc.com. We would love to get back to you as soon as possible. But if you're here on site, go out into the lobby after service. we got folks out at the point near the main entrance. we got people at room C and D in the lobby who are there to help you answer your questions, to pray with you, to help you get ready for baptism this very day. If you're at home, we'll set up your baptism as soon as possible possible or we'll even show you how to do it at home do it yourself baptism yes you can do that and we would love to help you with that now if you're still doubting okay what are you going to do I would challenge you I think the best thing I can encourage you to do is to read one of the gospels for yourself ask God to speak through his word as you read about the most amazing person who's ever lived that we're still celebrating and praising and following two millennia later. Let one of these books expose you to that life-saving message. Maybe it will be the Gospel of John. It's 21 chapters. And so if you start reading now, it's only going to take you a couple hours, like the length of a Christmas movie. Read two or three chapters a day, and you'll be done by New Year's Day. That's the best thing you can do right now. Pull out your Bible, get online, pull down that app called YouVersion, read off, that, read off your device, read off uh, your laptop, BibleGateway.com. You're saying, I don't have time for that. All right. Well, you know what? Those, those online things will actually read it to you while you're commuting or while you're doing chores. But let this be the, get a, a head start on Bible reading as your new daily habit for the new year. And if you are struggling, fearful, worried, grieving, and you're missing the peace, you're missing comfort, you're missing hope, then believe these words of Jesus in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me.